What do you know about that, man? <laughs> That was pretty fun. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this one is going to be a little bit different. But before we get started, I'll go ahead and just do it formally. I'm Chase Winninger, host of the podcast. Lee McClellan, co-host of the podcast. How's everyone? And the reason it's different is because of our guest today, Bobby. Why well, is this different? It's different <laughs> because typically when we have somebody in here, I can just say uh, they are the Deer and Oak Program Coordinator. And that explains who they are. But you, it's like i got to kind of explain who Bobby is a little bit and why you're here. So, um, Lee, when you look at Bobby, what do you see? A young man in good shape. Oh, come on. You're being way too nice. <laughs> That's not what I expected at all. I, I, I was thinking like, no, he's kind of kind of looks like a hippie or something. Well, he, he looks like a that hippie. That doesn't bother me. No. Now, Bobby kind of looks like a hippie. You don't have to beat around the bush. Bobby knows he looks like a hippie. That's all right. Don't you, Bob? Yeah, I'm getting a little bit of haircut off today, actually. How much hair are we going to cut off? Maybe six, seven inches. Dang. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty ratty. <laughs> sure, your mom will be happy about that. She is. But uh, so so one of the things I want to get into today is I've been getting these hate messages and death threats out the roof lately, right? <laughs> and the, most of those messages and stuff like that are just coming from people who don't understand hunting, why it's done, all that good stuff, right? The benefits of it. And Bobby here kind of bridges that gap between... The little, I, don't know, I hate to use political stuff, maybe a little bit more left-leaning people or you know, maybe a the, the little bit more hippie type people who are anti-hunting and people who hunt and understand hunting. Because Bobby kind of lives that left-leaning lifestyle a little bit. He lives in a tiny house. He built himself, right? Yeah, still working on that. <laughs> he literally lives in a hut in the woods that <laughs> he built uh, in the summer. And then, I mean, it's really nice. Uh, you go in there, he's got these nice uh, creek rock floors that... Um, retain heat so it stays warm at night and all this stuff and a wood burning stove and the way it's set up i mean some thought went into it so when we get our electric bill i'm jealous of you (laughs) (laughs) smartest man in central kentucky i don't know about that yep it lives right over there off of uh in peaks mill area too so it's pretty cool little setup oh cool yep all right that's wonderful part of the world isn't it yeah it is kind of paradise out there not far from the uh still branch put in on the Kentucky River. Okay. So. Well, I have a. I had lunch with a good friend. She lives out on Old Owenton Road. So, mm-hmm. yeah, same neighborhood. Yeah. So, in addition to that, Bobby also has like his uh, kind of not really. I don't know. Is it self-sustaining farm? You kind of do things in a self-sustaining way. Yeah, it's a small-scale farm with little pieces of uh, permaculture, some pieces of traditional or conventional farming, um, and just kind of throwing it together because we're not making a lot of money off of it. We're just trying to experiment with what's going to work. Mm-hmm. with our size farm and and our family you know inputs yeah so i mean he like has his chickens and his turkeys and his guineas and he uses those to spread the manure from the from the cattle so it fertilizes the ground instead of you know building up in one spot and killing off the grass because then and then he moves his cattle around you know very scientifically to make sure they're grazing and they're, i mean i'm sure you got it all figured out you know what you're doing yeah well mostly just learning because that's all it is at this point you know we didn't come from a family of farmers and the the way that our farm is operating is 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 somewhat progressive, especially for Kentucky. Yeah. Way to think about it that way. So we're just trying to figure out what what works with our landscape mm-hmm. and our little microclimate there. And and so I mean that kind of paints a picture. He's also got every what, what time of year he he inoculates logs. He's got mushrooms growing all over the place. Different varieties of mushrooms to harvest and eat and sell. I guess you do sell some, right? Yeah, of course. I mean that's. Mushroom farming is is a, 
a perennial tile, uh, style type of farming. So it's going to take a handful of years just to get up to capacity and, and build it from there. Are you doing shiitakes? Yeah, shiitakes are just one of, I think, four varieties we're growing there. In the addition to does shiitakes. Oh, yeah. And they're the cash crop on our farm at this point. So anyway, you can kind of get the picture. Bobby's not your average person who hunts and fishes, right? Because most people who hunt fish aren't, I mean, that seems much more like a, a left-leaning type of mentality. Maybe the kind of person who wouldn't necessarily be all in favor of hunting, right? Sure. But sometimes I have the best conversations about why hunting is beneficial and things I don't even think about with Bob, because Bobby kind of understands that um, aspect of it that we just explained, you know, like the renew, Bob, you're going to have to help me out on this. It's not, it's, it's more renewable. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's actually less impactful for the environment. I want Bobby to explain some of that because, you know, I think it's something that a lot of people could probably learn something from. I learn something from it every time I talk to him about it. So, but just to keep painting the picture, me and Bobby have known each other since Heritage Elementary. I don't know how old we were. Just little kids. Yeah, we were little kids. Bobby was clean cut and clean shaven. Actually, he couldn't even grow facial hair back then. Neither could I. No. And then, uh, so we lived next to each other in high school. And I, I think literally every single day after school, we'd get together and ride our bikes over to the lake or the creek or do some stuff like that. I've seen Bobby have some great bike racks. I remember pulling rocks out of his back with a pair of pliers in a th- in thunderstorm. <laughs> God, I had some heinous ones too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's just part of growing up, man, riding your bike all over the place with your fishing pole across Maybe the handlebars. I had some nasty uh, motorcycle racks. Oh. Well, <laughs> I burnt my leg really bad. I flushed a covey of quail and it scared the fire out of me. I let go of everything and just panicked and yeah. my bike fell on my leg and burnt the fire out of me. That's what it did. Yeah, and uh, I think uh, me and Bobby uh, made a list of things we've hunted together. Uh, deer, elk, turkey, bear, squirrel, rabbit, coyote, bobcat. Am I missing anything there? Pretty much everything in the state of Kentucky. Yeah. And then uh, we've you know fished pretty much every lake, river, stream, pond that we could possibly go to. Bobby's gone out of the state and done more out of state than I have. He lived in Vermont for a year. What were you doing in Vermont? I was just exploring at that point, but I, I worked on a blueberry farm for a minute, <laughs> and then I uh, went and did a river restoration project on the White River, built a house in Montpelier. Um, got I was just exploring. That's pretty cool, though. Yeah. But catching those uh, pike on the fly rod and all that stuff kind of got you geared up for a new adventure right here in Kentucky. Oh, yeah. It's musky time. Musky time. Yeah, I've got a list of streams here. We'll talk about later. Uh-oh. That's something that musky streams. Chase asked me. Yeah, I did. I did tell him that you were interested in doing that ahead of time, and Lee here's the resource for some of that musky fishing and where to go. Sure, type stuff. Stream so. fishing in general. Mm-hmm. Yep. But anyway, Bob. So the thing I really wanted to get to. Let's see. I have this note here. I actually did write down notes today, which shows you <laughs> I was prepared. Um, so the way I see it, and you probably have to correct me on this, there are really three main ways, and, I'm, and this is in response to the people who you know send me messages and who I think just don't understand the impact of hunting and the impact of other ways to get your food, right? And maybe the benefits of hunting, aside from the money that goes into conservation from hunting. Because that's the big one that everybody looks at. Everybody's like, oh, all this money goes into conservation because of hunting and fishing license sales and excise tax. That's the obvious one. But the, the non-obvious one, is the benefit for the environment or the lack of damage done to the environment, right? So the way I see it, there's really three main ways you can get your food. Store-bought, right? Which is what most people do. You can self-harvest your food. And and I don't think it's reasonable to think that anybody could self-harvest all of their food, but it's just a percentage of it. Maybe you can get 30% of your food. So like farming or wild foraging? Wild foraging, um, the self-sustaining farm like you have would probably be an example also. And uh, hunting, fishing. And I know you do a lot of foraging, too. We went and looked for uh, ramps last year. You're always out looking for 
mushrooms and stuff like that. So you could probably talk about that. And then the third one would be store-bought also, but it's like a vegan or vegetarian option, right? Sure. Talking about these are the three main classes. That's of- that's the way I see it. Is there anything else I'm missing that you can think of? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think you can break down, you know, how people pick and choose their food in a lot of ways. But as far as I think, sure. That yeah. Sounds good. So when people buy their food from the store, say somebody is opposed to hunting, but they still eat meat. They still go store buy meat. Yeah. Talk a little bit about what that entails. Like really its effect on the environment. Yeah. I guess, you know, you can put your money, your dollar at the grocery store where, where your heart is, where, what you believe in there. So if you really aren't super concerned about it, you can buy into conventional uh, meat, which is like the just say beef, for example, where we may raise it here in Kentucky, then we'll drive it across the country and let it fatten it up um, on a feedlot for a certain amount of time and then harvest it and ship it all the way back across the country to us. Um, there's a lot of fossil fuels used in that system just to get your food, just to get to transport it from yeah. one side, from wherever, and say it doesn't have to go all the way across the country, transport it from point A to point B and then back to point A again or to point C and then wherever it needs to go. A lot of fuel is being used to transport that meat. And not just that, but you mentioned the feedlot. And I know that you told me at one point in time that the number one, was it pollutant that we have is actually a, what, with the topsoil? Yeah, I guess our, our biggest, I think our biggest nationwide pollutant um, through my lens of doing stream restoration um, and learning as a biologist is sediment pollution has the biggest impact on our waterways um, and you know a lot of the other systems in our ecosystem are fed through the waterways and they feed from the waterways so if we have sediment issues there we've got problems at the base of our food chain mm-hmm. that makes perfect sense and the reason we have sediment issues is uh, erosion runoff and is there anything that goes into the chemicals that are used in traditional farming yeah and it well, I, I know we're recording. I forget. How much of this stuff do you guys just jump in and out of at this uh, point? I try to leave it, but we'll, I'll clean it up. Okay, well, I'll ask because I can I can also do a better job of explaining okay. that last part. But, Let's do it. Well, so not only does your the meat itself have to be transported here and there, but just to grow that meat in our conventional system to raise it on corn, um, a corn-based diet, which is, you know, you have to dedicate a certain amount of ag region just to producing food for animals Mm -hmm. and in doing that you're uh, doing a lot of row crop style farming and you leave fields exposed um, just barren a certain amount of the year even if you're doing rotations and cover crops there's still a lot of sediment that you're losing a lot of topsoil that um, that you don't get back it runs right off the field Mm -hmm. and so there's there's obviously the alternative to that, I guess. Well, and not just that, but you told, I mean, it's obvious that when you remove that topsoil, you're removing the nutrition. You have to put that nutrition back in so you can grow crops the next year. And that's where fertilizers and nitrogen and things like that come into play. So not only are you removing topsoil, creating erosion and runoff issues, which leads to what you said was the number one pollutant, which is a sediment issue, right? Polluting our waterways. But you're also putting chemicals into the ground that kind of unnatural at the same time, right? Yeah, and the chemicals themselves, you know, and this isn't knocking anyone or friends of ours who are farmers and that. No, I say I've got stuff. good friends that are farmers and they do this exact thing, and I'm not because it's 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 not realistic to think that everybody could. I mean, this is it's a necessity right now, so it's it's needed. Right, this is all we know. This is how we take care of our of our communities at this point, and this is what's in place. But um, the the chemicals themselves, the the types of nitrogen and phosphorus that you would add to 
to compensate for the nutrients that you've lost through runoff or the nutrients that you've consumed through harvesting your crops are replaced with um, chemical like mined fertilizers and then so you have you have a mining operation going on somewhere else that's as out of sight and out of mind uh-huh. just to get those nutrients to your field just for only a small portion of those to be uptake by your plant and the, the vast majority of those nutrients washed into your streams okay so really when you're looking at store-bought meat you're looking at a whole system that you're dedicating ground to the the animals so like feedlots and things like that which means less trees and it means uh, issues with the soil quality runoff issues there then you're dedicating a ton of ground to grain to feed these animals, which also results in less plants, less native wildlife, less trees, more erosion, chemicals being put into the ground. And another byproduct of that is you got to have a mine site somewhere where you're getting the, the uh, fertilizers and the chemicals that you're using to feed these plants. And on top of all that, you're also trucking all this stuff all over the place or, or transporting it by train, so you're burning fossil fuels. So the net result of buying store-bought meat is a pretty has a pretty big impact on the environment. Yeah. I mean, a huge one. Yeah, very much so. I mean, you can also get into um, animal welfare in mm-hmm. our conventional system too. You know, I think a lot of improvements have been made over the last fifty or hundred years, probably. But it's still um, compared to a, c- compared to a deer, elk walking around in the wild. Those animals aren't living the best life. Yeah, com- yeah. Compared to that, compared to a s- uh, smaller still smaller scale farming system that's more community based, where You've got a farmer who supports, you know, who provides for a handful of neighbors, and it's a, a maybe a grass-fed operation. Mm-hmm. Your meat only goes down to the processor down the road and, and back to you. Yeah, that has a little bit smaller, uh, I want to say carbon footprint. footprint yeah. yeah. And then, uh, so, I mean, that kind of sums up one way of, of getting food. And, I mean, that, I guess we can touch on the non-meat food, because you're a forager also. So, I would like to touch on that. When you... Uh, Let's say you buy vegetables or something like that from the store. I mean, a lot goes into that as well. Oh, you know what? I want to touch on this. I know that our buddy that we are thinking about that's a farmer, he kills more animals every year than I could ever dream of with that combine, (laughs) okay? So not just that, but when you're harvesting those grains and you're harvesting those crops, you are, I mean, you're adding up some some numbers there of all different species because it's not like you're selectively harvesting there. It's just whatever's in front of you. People, people don't really think about that unless you jump in the combine and you take a trip down the field one or two times, and then you'll see. But um, So when you buy vegetables, is there anything similar to, to, to as far as when you buy meat from the store? I mean, a lot of our vegetables we have to choose from here in Kentucky at this time of year are coming from South America mm-hmm. or California or something. You know, just that distance there is is energy that you've got to consider is that it takes to get to you. Mm-hmm. Um then you're also dedicating space to those two. It's not like you're having the the best thing for the environment in my mind is what's naturally supposed to be there. Like when we talk about habitat management for small game or any game, really, it's natural grasses that are not mowed. I mean, it's it's uh, natural hardwoods, and it's just the natural environment is the best habitat. And anytime you're growing anything on large scale, you're clear cutting all that natural habitat, and you're um, reintroducing something else and you're putting something else in its place. So you're really destroying habitat anytime you do that. And I know it's nice to have cornfields or bean fields and stuff like that around where you hunt because that's obviously something that's going to draw in some deer, but at the same time, it's not the best thing for the environment as a whole. Does that make sense? Yep. Off base. And the amount of land and pasturage as well that would be in woods. Yeah, exactly. Probably. I mean, think about what the state looked like 200 years ago before all this was going on. I mean, it was just forest as far as you could see. Oh. And the inner bluegrass region was a savanna habitat. 
<clears throat> was it? It was really cool. This area was? <clears throat> Just mainly, there's a remnant right across the road. Oh, really? On the Julian. Oh, okay. I know where, yeah, okay. And did you see some of those, you know, there are giant bur oaks and uh, blue ash, which are, of course, under attack. Yeah. Uh, with an understory of, of wild rise and some cane. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was it was unique. A few years ago, I made the mistake <clears throat> of... Dang, Lee. I know. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, a few years ago, I made the mistake of building several tree stands and ash trees. And that's when we were using a wooden uh, platforms instead of hanging hang-ons or climbers. We just take a couple of two-by-fours up there with us and put them in the tree, and they're permanent stands in those ash trees. And I'm just waiting for my favorite deer stand to fall over. Bobby's favorite deer stand, too, probably. Yeah, we put them in ash trees before the ash Board beetle, beetle yeah. was a problem. And now... We get into trees and realize that they creak a lot more. And there's no leaves on them. <laughs> <laughs> and that's going to be more and more of an issue as we go along. You know, just deadfalls and widowmakers from, from all the dead ash. Our, our, my favorite deer stand, I say our, because Bobby had some good luck out of it too. It was in an ash tree that died, and I would still hunt it because I would look over and there was this other ash tree that was in worse shape. Mm -hmm. And that was like my gauge. I was like, as long as that tree's there, this mm -hmm. one should be good. Yeah. I went out there after this past season was over like two months ago and that my indicator tree had fallen over. So I think I'd abandon <laughs> the other one. Yeah, I don't know. Up, baby. Uh, I, just, I just don't know if I can do it. That's such a good stand. Now, when we first built that stand, we built it in the summer. And then uh, I remember I was over at Bobby's house in Richmond when we lived there. And it was like the week leading up to season. And he was making... Uh, arrows out of cedar blanks and turkey wing feathers from a turkey he'd killed that spring mm -hmm. and uh, shoot out of his recurve he walked you see what he's wearing right now that plaid t-shirt that's what he wore to the stand that day and i i was decked out in a camo head to toe i got my compound and i was hunting the opposite side of the farm so we were both hunting and i went out there and then we met back up at the truck afterwards and he asked me if i saw anything i was like oh you know i saw two or three does and one buck too far away i couldn't really tell what he was and it's like do you see anything He's like, yeah, I shot one. I was like, what? You shot one? And I was just like, are you kidding me? We went over there in Blood Children. It was a really nice uh, eight-pointer, big mature eight-pointer, 80 yards from the stand, 25-yard shot, put it right through him. So, and that was the first hunt out of that stand. You look at old issues yeah. in the magazine from the 70s. I mean, people had on brown shirts and blue jeans and boots. Oh, the, and, you know. I'm telling you, the more I hunt, the less I care about camo and the less I care about scent control. It just, I mean... It doesn't matter as much as young people or new hunters think it does. I talk about myself like I'm an old man, but, I mean, it just doesn't matter as much as you think it does. So, it appeals to the consumer. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of advertising <laughs> out there. It's true. So, um, getting back into the, the ways you get your food type deal. And I'm really wanting to, I know we've kind of been all over the place, but I'm really wanting to round this back into just the lack of understanding people have on the effects on the environment and the benefits of hunting in comparison to other ways to get your food, right? Because I honestly don't think if anybody fully understood conservation and self-harvesting your own food and the benefits or the non-negative effects of it in comparison to other ways to get your food that anybody would bash a hunter you know what i mean because you're in my opinion you're really doing it the best way possible if you're self-harvesting just a percentage of your own food so when you do harvest your own food i mean you're literally just being an active member in the environment right the say it's mushroom say it's ramp say it's a leeks whatever you go harvest because I'm not a, I'm not a forager. I don't know much. I've tried before. Yeah, I've mix in the garden, but I'm not very good at finding <laughs> stuff like that. I've seen some mushrooms before. I didn't know. I was like, Bobby, is this one? What's this thing? He's like, uh, No, that's an angel destroyer. That'll kill you in two hours. Do you have any dryland fish on your phone? Have you ever heard that expression? Uh, dryland fish is um, morel. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, they're out there, and I would do some like uh, casting. 
trying to pr promote some Marilla uh, growth out there. Whole town country people call them dry land fish. You yeah. ever heard that? I just actually ran across that word like last week as an alternative for it. But my morale success is low at this point. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny, these foragers. I've been around Bobby and some other guys that like to go out and look for mushrooms and stuff. And they're very secretive about where they find them at, too. Mm -hmm. I saw one of your buddies get real mad one time because somebody went out there and cleaned out a spot. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, yeah, that's... It's like a fishing spot. Mm -hmm. Don't tell people about it. <laughs> Don't tell your friends either. <laughs> the good thing Especially is. in the day and age of the internet. Man. Oh, Stuff yeah. that used to take 10 years to get around now takes 10 minutes. Yeah. You know? Well, the good thing is a lot of times you can fish while looking for them. That's mm -hmm. all I'll say about that. I won't, I won't give away your spots, Bob. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but um, so in your opinion, Bob, when you're harvesting food from the environment naturally, um, hunting, fishing, foraging, anything like that, I mean, what's the impact on the environment there? I mean, is it anything significant? If you're doing it respectfully and responsibly, I mean, really, you're promoting a healthier environment just by doing it. If you're if you're talking about foraging, you know, just foraging, not, well, not hunting necessarily at this point, but you do have to do it really thoughtfully because I don't think, I'm not sure, I'm not the authority on this, but I don't think that we could encourage everyone to go out and start foraging today. Yeah, well, you couldn't. Even if you did it responsibly, it, we just don't have that capacity. There are definitely a lot more people here than this place is probably intended for. Oh, yeah. But for those people who are interested in already doing it, you know, if it, you keep in mind that as you harvest, you need to be considering how you're spreading those spores. I think humans and mushrooms have a, a long, long, let's say humans or primates and mushrooms have a, a long-standing relationship, maybe co-evolved together. And we're probably, I would imagine there were more mushrooms in abundance when more people were foraging. And just spreading spores, uh, letting those spores have an opportunity to land in a new and ideal habitat. But that said, we can't go out and snag up all the all the mushrooms today. Yeah. Um, well, the thing is, even if you're talking about people as a whole, the percentage of people that are ever going to uh, listen to or take into consideration and actually do something is very small. So, sure. you know, if you're talking to, say, say we were talking right now to the entire population of Kentucky and everybody was hearing it, the number of people that would actually go out and take action based on that would be pretty small because it takes work it takes learning you can't just go pick a mushroom and eat it it takes a lot of work doing a little bit it takes a lot of work but the goal here for me is really just to try to educate some people about this stuff i don't necessarily think it's going to result in a ton of people doing it no but it but just on but i think help helping people to be educated to uh support people in their community who are doing that already or mm -hmm. who are cultivating these mushrooms or who are cultivating who are just farming in general. Mm -hmm. um, I think having an understanding of how to get your food, whatever source it is, from point A to point B with the least amount of effort, the least amount of in-between steps is, is helpful. Yeah. Well, that's kind of the point, yeah. Because when you're that's, – that's kind of what I was getting at. I know this has been a little bit more all over the place than I wanted to, but when you're buying something from somebody else, you're – I mean, that stuff is going all over the place. It's being trucked one place to the other. you got equipment that's being ran. We already pointed out the clear-cutting of, of ground, the erosion issues, the chemicals being added, the the uh, non-direct resources that are being used. Like, you know, you got to think about the mine site. you got to think about the uh, oil, the coal that's being used, and all the different processes that it takes, to, and the steel to build the equipment. I mean, there's a huge impact. And, I mean, I'm not saying that one person going out there and deciding to harvest three or four deer a year instead of buying, you know, 150 pounds of store-bought meat a year is going to make a huge impact. But, you know, it's doing something. Compounded interest. Yeah, exactly. 
And that's just the way I look at it. I mean, if you can go out and you can harvest a couple of deer as, as opposed to buying all your meat from a store, which is something your average person could probably pull off. If I mean, your average interested person, there's a lot of public hunting land out there. There's a lot of private land that somebody would let you on to hunt. Sure. And you get four tags with your license now. Yeah, I think there's a lot of room for improvement with hunters as well. You know, each of us could also do a better job of making that time to to process out each of those animals to its completion. Yeah. You know, there's there's a lot still left on the table for a lot of hunters out there. Mm, that's true. I'm guilty of that sometimes too. Not because I mean I've been with you before. You get the ribs out of the deer. I mean stuff like that. Not everybody thinks about that stuff. Most people are the back straps, uh, the back quarters, and possibly the front shoulders type people. But I mean there's the inner loins and there's neck meat and there's a lot of a lot of meat that does go to waste on your average harvested deer. And your average hunter isn't necessarily in it for the meat in my opinion. You know if you look at our buck to doe ratios or harvest ratios. Even if you exclude zone four, Franklin County, Shelby County, you're looking at like 53% male deer harvest when you get four deer on your tag and only one of them can be a male. You know what I mean? So most people are going out there looking for that buck and when they shoot the buck, I mean, a lot of people are hanging it up at that point. Even your average hunter could probably substitute more of their store-bought meat with harvested meat and that's something we actually want to have happen and want to promote around here because, I mean, we got too many deer in zone one, zone two. So we want people to take more deer. So even if your average hunter was just thinking, all right, you know what? I'm going to save 70 bucks on meat that I'm going to buy for the store this year, and I'm going to go out, and I'm going to take an extra deer, and I'm going to have you know a less of an impact on the environment. I'm going to save some money. I'm going to have better quality meat at the same time, and I'm going to be helping to reduce the deer herd in this area. I mean, that's a win-win-win-win in every way possible, and I just kind of wish more people would think about it that way. But what I was really wanting to get to was the fact that I don't think these people who are threatening me and hating on me have any idea what they're talking about. Yeah, I doubt many of them are listening right now either. Oh, I highly doubt they are, but maybe, maybe somebody they know is. Because <laughs> no, all these threats are not credible at all. I don't put any I don't, the stock on them. Social media and the internet is. Keyboard warriors. It just brings out the worst in people, you know. Oh, it's so easy to type something hateful <clears throat> to somebody and hit send when you'd never say something to their face. I know. That's just how it goes. Do you have any pawpaws on your plate? I have been planting pawpaws, both wild varieties that I can get at the... Uh, state nurseries and some cultivars from different nurseries in in the region um, just to see what I can get off there. I think there's a big void in even just our local Franklin County farmers market in fruit. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a couple fruit providers, but there's there's a space for a we had a fruit. pawpaw stand growing up. But man, there was a pretty narrow window when they would fall, <laughs> and then if, if you waited a little bit too long or you had a couple of storms, you can get on them. Man, they would yep. animals would get them, and they you know there's a very narrow window there where they're perfect yeah but, same with the persimmon yeah. It's, mm-hmm. yeah we don't have a lot of long lasting do you eat may apples i don't touch the may apples have you ever eaten one no my granddad used to but the the, the i believe the roots are poisonous correct really? i don't know the t- they make good tool paper what yeah. wait may apple leaves not the apple okay stuff. i was like what are the you probably you know oh lee i was like what in the world? what are you talking about bob yeah. Just, my granddad's like i used to eat my weight in may apples hmm. you know he grew up in a time where, uh, you know, foraging was all part. You know, you'd get all the walnuts you could. You'd eat mulberries off the tree. I mean, he, he would, when he had a garden, he'd eat half the green beans on the way back to raw. Yeah. On the way back to the house. I think the generation before <clears throat> us, out of necessity, had a much better system in place. You know, out of convenience and the technological improvements, we, are, we can be lazier mm-hmm. with the way we get our food and we can... Have it truck truck crap. A lot of people are busy these days too. It seems like everybody's in a hurry, mm-hmm. and it's much quicker to swing by Kroger on the way home 
than it is to go out and sit in the woods for half a day or walk around the woods for miles and miles and miles to forage. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, mean, I know you obviously grow a lot of this stuff on your property. You know where it is. You don't have to go looking for it. But I know that you started a lot of that stuff from scratch by going out and looking for it. You had to harvest the trees you used to inoculate those logs. You had to, I don't know if you actually got your ramps or leaks from the wild and then transplanted them. But I know that that was something you were looking at doing. So it still took a lot of effort to get going. You know, I've gotten out of it, but I used to eat mulberries all the time. There was a big tree near the house I grew up in. and I'd crush oh, yeah. them when they, when they were there. Oh, the really really good mm -hmm. they were awesome oh. how's your small scale farm work like give me a rundown of it well I mean, how many acres is it that's actually on yeah it's just it's a family farm we're at like 23 acres 23 acres yeah. and, and you could could you think you could easily sustain the family with that yeah i think so if you know there was multiple of us at least one of us fully dedicated you know night and day to work and work in the land and working for the future of that farm so that it would sustain us you yeah. know but as it sits right now, I mean, we, we've got a small herd of cattle out there that are all part of the game. Um, we had some pigs out there, too. They were an early system to help kind of establish some terraces for some gardens. And then... Explain that. So you use the pigs as tools, basically. Yeah. And just like anyone would have years ago would have used, would have used them to pack a pond, you know, to get a leak out of a pond or something. Well, I use pigs hmm. in a short run with this, you know, with the advancement of having portable electric wire fences. I can pick and choose where I want my pigs to make a terrace or to make a, to get me a garden, give me some um, soil turned over so I can get started somewhere. So you use the pigs to till the garden, I've basically. I've never heard of using them for stop a leaky pond. That's fascinating. Yeah, I think that's a pretty pretty standard approach to taking care of that. You know, as as they fix leaks, the water level rises until they continue, because they just work in the rim a lot mm -hmm. of time or a couple, you know, maybe a foot or so deep. But so many people have leakage issues with their farm ponds. Oh, yeah. You get some pigs out there. <laughs> yeah. So you use the pigs to create terraces and to, to uh, get your ground ready to create a garden. Yeah. And then so I have rotations of, of cows and chickens, you know, in isolated spaces where I give the I have cows somewhere for, let's say, four days to a week in one spot and in, in a place that they can kind of consume that space, maybe 50 percent of the, uh, the forage. Mm -hmm. I'll move them off of that. And maybe behind them or in front of them, I'll have um, chickens that will get moved daily in a plot where they can get out. And then they can have a run that gets moved daily. Um, so I'm adding fertilizer to spaces where I want them um, right. to improve, you know, to improve ground that um, I'm taking over an old cattle farm that used to, that was just run way too heavy with cattle, it seemed like. So a lot of rough ground a lot of like indicator species of poor nutrients in mm -hmm. the soil so i pick those locations and try to work them in different ways and i don't really know exactly what i'm doing i'm just intuiting that this is how i should try this and see what kind of results i get follow it you know learn mm -hmm. from my results and move try different systems from there huh. so those are the you know those are how the animal systems work but it's easy to want to grow a garden and put a bunch of annuals out there but if you've got a little space or or even a very small amount of space, perennial farming is going to be worth its energy. So planting berry tree, berry bushes or mulberry trees or walnuts or something like that, uh, something that takes time that you've got to be committed to, but you're going to get more from that in the long run. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. It just might take what, a couple of years to get going. That depends on what it is. I mean, you can be harvesting mushrooms in, in six months if you wanted to go that way. Yeah. But 
You got goats too. Are those are there any purpose to the goats? <laughs> goats are for purely for entertainment. <laughs> My yeah. brother has them and he just laughs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think they're it's it's nice that they have it, you know. If ever we were really to need goats for for milk or for meat, we've got them, but for right now they're just to learn from. And we can learn from them and apply that knowledge to the cattle or what could you learn from a goat that you could apply to a cow? Well, we can just learn how to work with them, how to read the animal, and then how to upscale that to a cow, okay. you know, in different situations. And just getting to work the goats every so often gives you a better feel for approaching other animals. Mm -hmm. Not not to say that goats and cows are at all. That's they have so a lot hard. of personality. Oh, yeah. Out there on Bobby's farm, not this last winter, but the one before that, he started having turkeys going missing. And they were, like, going missing at the same time in the morning, right? And it's yeah. like basically as soon as they flew down from the roost. Yeah, they come. Our turkeys uh, stay in a walnut tree on the farm. They pick that spot themselves. And the, but when they'd hit the ground in the morning, one of them would disappear pretty much instantly. <laughs> uh, so we got a trail camera on it to kind of just see what we were dealing with. And first night we set the trail camera up, we had a, uh, a bobcat in a bobcat with a full-grown domesticated tom turkey in its mouth. <laughs> and the bobcat could tell there was a camera or something there and grabbed that turkey, lifted it completely off the ground and walked off with it. That's like a 40-pound turkey. <laughs> yeah, it was in the 30s and it was, and that was a big cat. Yeah, I saw, I got truck and pictures of that cat on my cell phone still. It's huge. Big spotted up cat, but it's kind of cool seeing the wildlife that's out there too because right next to your farm is a big ravine with a rock over you know, like a rocky outcrops and big, there's actually cedars and hardwoods and all kinds of stuff right there. And like I said, you're only a couple miles from the Kentucky River and from Elkhorn Creek. So there's a lot of wildlife in that area. Mm -hmm. There it's, he is. Yeah. It, it's a cool spot. Pretty cool spot. But people could do more with less than they think they could. You know, you think of it, if you have 20 acres, I mean, a lot of people don't realize that they could support. They could do a lot with it, but it takes work, I think, is the, the lesson there. Yeah, for sure. Did you replace your turkeys? Yeah, well, we keep growing them. We keep raising turkeys, and I hope to do more with the turkeys this year. Has um, the bobcat come back? Has not. So well, I woke up one morning. Might still be full. <laughs> <laughs> he was killing one every three days. Yeah. we were. It wouldn't even eat it all, really. It, it would just it enjoyed it for the first day or so. But... um. Woke up another morning and looked out the window, just happened to look out watching uh, two coyotes running off with some turkeys. And I was like, got to get some some dogs. Well, we, we killed one of those coyotes. Yeah, we hunted for them and with success too. And, uh, <laughs> but really nothing was better than to bring the dogs in. Anyway, and they what, don't, what are your, what's the breed again? Uh, there, there are two of them that are um, Pyrenees and Anatolian Shepherd mix. And um, so they're, they're livestock guardian dogs. Anyway, not that they knew what they were doing or I knew how to train them so much as they've established a presence on the farm mm -hmm. and they've created a perimeter in a way that we haven't lost anything. Only kills we've had have been to a hawk at this point. Okay. A hawk's a tough one to deal with. Can't stop a hawk. I've, no. had, I've had that issue had myself. Cooper's in the backyard uh, Saturday morning and all of that, you know, I, I feed her out in the fence sock and poof, it's like I threw a hand grenade out there. Yep. Oh, really? Yeah. He came <laughs> down, boom, look up, and I saw the Coopers. Like, mm, no wonder. Yeah. We just sacrificed guineas <clears throat> to the to the hawks at this point. They can have as many guineas as they want. <laughs> they can have as many <laughs> guineas as they want. Yeah. What kind of hawk? Um, yeah, just um, we've had Coopers hawk. The Coopers hawk is the regular mm -hmm. out there. Uh, but, you know, we've seen the bald eagles out at the farm, too. They just kind of 
making their way up and down the river. Not that they're coming down for our chickens necessarily. But. I've seen bald eagles really close to your farm. They, they might be interested in one of your goats. Yeah. <laughs> that would be cool. <laughs> Chase's first um, videography shoot, wasn't it, was with me on Floyd's Fork. And we were what, a few hundred yards from Bardstown Road and at the end of the shoot, and here's a bald eagle. Yeah. You know? I've seen I've seen a lot of bald eagles. In Fern Creek, Kentucky, here's a bald eagle. There was about, no, it might have been March last year. Me and Bobby got out fishing. We were way ahead of the white bass run. We weren't catching them. <clears throat> no, we caught very few fish that day. It was, we were in Salt River, and we had a bald eagle 20 feet over our head just sitting there in a, in a tree. I kind of wish I could have caught a fish so I could have seen what he would have done when it was coming in. But Remember that? Oh, yeah. Who's going, the white bass aren't running yet, are they? No, he's, he's, <laughs> he's thinking, I'm going to sit here for weeks. <laughs> yeah, last, last, last year's white bass run was kind of hit and it go. Was hit, it was really hit and miss. Yeah. so much high water. <laughs> hey, if it doesn't quit doing what it's doing, it's going to be the same thing this year. This has been the, the worst year. In the, it's been the worst over a year now that I could ever think of for fishing or kayaking, unless you like whitewater kayaking. Mm -hmm. I did that one time with Bobby, and I don't fit in a whitewater boat is what I learned. I just don't fit in one of those things. That's the first one I fished out of. I didn't know the difference at the time. I was like, well, I'll never have one of these to fish. Now I have two. But they're a fishing kayak. Not a, you yeah. know, it was so squirrely, I couldn't keep it. You know, But it's designed to do that. It has to have maneuverability when you're in hairy environments. But yeah. it's not worth a hoot to fish out of. I, yeah, not I, flipping them over. Anybody, I couldn't you know? believe I didn't break my leg in Silver Creek that one day. Trying to stand up in that riffle with the, all that water. <laughs> yeah, did everything you wasn't supposed to do. I love but... old Silver Creek. Oh, that's fun. I love Silver Creek. They changed it a lot. They, you know, they've they've taken the machines in there, and in the falls area, they've redone some of that. And the falls changed a lot while I was at school there. I don't know, did you? Because you went, Bobby yeah. went to UK after EKU, and I stayed at EKU after that. So I don't know if you kept going to Silver Creek after you left Richmond or not. Yeah, no, I'm not sure what the work was for, but it was different. I know that they had some big impactful flooding down flooding there too down that there. changed, mm -hmm. you know, that messed with the roadway, and some other stuff. So it was probably an, an attempt to improve the. Yeah, I think they dug out that pool below the falls and kind of made that deeper, and they might have done that so it would hold more water and be less likely to flood. I'm Back not sure. When I was at Eastern, that was a pretty popular gathering spot. Oh, it still still was when <laughs> we were there. Put swim and stuff, you yeah. know. Put on the Rolling Stones and you know. Put on, put on the Rolling Stones and swim around. It was fun. I think people still do that there today. So, I. Um, <clears throat> what I was saying, Bob, we need to try to plan a trip for sometime soon to get out there. I, you know, people have been catching the muskies still in the river systems. I know a guy who caught five the other day um, on the Middle Fork. That's a pretty good day. He's also fishing out of a boat. I know you want to take your canoe. Yeah, that's the plan right now. Well, <laughs> one of the best ones is Tigers Creek. Have you fished Tigers? No, I only know it through whitewater as well. So. Um, where, where, it has an excellent musket population. There's some YouTube videos of some people catching them on fly rods. Where's that They're doing well. That's near Carter Cave State Park, Olive Hill. You know, that's actually where I'm going tomorrow. I'm going to Carter Cave. We're going in a cave, and there's a bat population that's been exposed to white nose. Mm -hmm. there, so They've had to close several caves up there because of it. We're going to take DNA samples tomorrow. So that, um, could, that could be cool. It, I, it, the best float is from downtown uh, Olive Hill down to the park. Some people put in at 64, but if you do that, have somebody drop you off. Um, it's pretty dicey, uh, but it, <laughs> it, it cuts the, the float in half. But if you want to burn water, just burn some water. And the, the best, the further you get toward Carter Cave State Park, the musket fishing gets better and better as you get further down the creek. <laughs> Tell me about white nose, Bob, because I'm, I don't, I'm not a bad guy. I don't know much about bats. I've, you know, I'm going in the cave tomorrow. We're going to do it. I know white nose is something that was a pretty big deal over the past, what, decade or so, probably? Yeah, so I started catching bats with um, Copperhead 
I did something out of paint lick back in maybe 2010. And um, at that point, White Nose had only really been on the maps here in, in the States for uh, just a few years, to my knowledge, or maybe a few years where it was becoming impactful. Um, we were doing surveys at that point, and we weren't seeing a lot in the places that we were um, netting, but we did see where some of the bats had damage because of White Nose and the wing membranes were weak or things like that. I spoke with a friend that I worked with back then. I just talked to her last a week or so. She's still working there and said that um, it is kind of devastated. Mm-hmm. Not just the populations that were, the species that were concerned at that time, but other species um, to the point where they're just not catching many bats to speak of yeah. on the netting, on a night of netting. Yeah, it's amazing how important bats are to the environment too. We were talking about all that stuff earlier. That's something your average outdoorsman, average hunter overlooks completely. You know, you see bats flying around the lights every now and then, or if you're fishing, you'll have them hit your fishing they, line. They swoop after bugs, and people think they're after them. You know, it's not. They're well, after the bug. Well, if somebody <laughs> thinks that, then they're ridiculous anyway. Well, I've written a couple of things about misconceptions about bats because they're so important. <laughs> you know, you want to get rid of uh, pesticides. More bats, less pesticide because yeah. they hammer insects, especially mosquitoes and stuff at night. They just, they, I mean, it's amazing the number of insects they'll eat in 24-hour period. Mm-hmm. They eat mosquitoes. I'm all for bats. It's amazing. They have radar echolocation. It's just, they're an amazing animal. We were out with our bat biologist earlier this year, mist netting for them. And um, <clears throat> somebody asked the question, he, he said he heard that uh, a single bat, I don't know what species it was, maybe a brown bat or something, could eat 600 mosquitoes in a night. And he said, well, that was an experiment that was done. You know, they just had a bat and they released it into a cage full of mosquitoes and they kind of got an idea for how many it ate. He said, I'm pretty sure that that bat would probably prefer one big juicy moth over mm-hmm. over a yeah. hundred mosquitoes. So. I think mosquitoes are like like little uh, mini Snickers bars. <laughs> mini Snickers bars? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and crunch on some of those. Yeah, Except it's for, amazing the numbers they consume in a day. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, but uh, just insects in general. But I, I do wish they ate 600 mosquitoes a piece a night. That'd be amazing. But the, the reality They could do something about the deer flies, too. You know, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, a little Cholula sauce on them to spice them up a little bit for them. <laughs> I hate deer flies. They like me. I hate them. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to tell which of these systems are interacting with each other. You know, mm-hmm. As we lose bats, what other problems are we having that we don't even know to associate that with? You saw a lot more when I was younger. It's concerning. Yeah, seeing a lot less in, in a eight-year period now. That's huh. just strange to see. See things like that happen in such a short time frame, just like the, the ash trees. Mm-hmm. Oh no! When if you you travel up Kentucky River Valley now and look and you see just hillsides full of dead ash, it's just yeah. sad. That stinks. What I mean, eventually the the ash trees falling and, and dying is gonna clear space for something else. Though it's clearing the canopy. I mean, because more sunlight's gonna be hitting the floor, something's gonna grow. I'm not sure what's gonna happen, but I'm sure we'll probably start seeing the after effects of that here in the next five or ten years or so. That's just my guess. I'm not the expert. <laughs> When you caught bats, Bob, what'd you do? Because you guys had a cool system. Well, I mean, that's what we were mist netting for different projects out, out, and so you guys were contracted, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, but we would mist net um, if you know we were trying to document you know, species variety. We're trying to let people know that if this is a place that they're going to maybe put a uh, pipeline through a power line or a development, that you know this is how unique of a in habitat. Um, this area is to the bats mm-hmm. by by us, how many different species we'd find the just the number of bats and like maybe even more significantly if we were finding any endangered or threatened bats in that area mm-hmm. and if so we would potentially tag them 
we'll put a radio tag on them and try to follow them back to a roost site to maybe get on to a location where we might find more of that particular species. And, um, hmm, that's pretty interesting. So people were looking at doing projects, building maybe developments, you said pipelines, things like that, and you were just basically trying to see what the, the uh, impact of that might be on the bat population. Right. Whether I mean, it was it was it a significant enough population or habitat to not allow that type of activity okay. or, you know, what is the mitigation value on that space? Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Now, a lot of projects like that go on that people don't even think about. I mean, we do so much up here that nobody ever thinks about. Nobody knows we're going into Carter Caves tomorrow to... Just told everybody. Well, I did now. That's kind of the purpose of Kentucky Field TV, though, and the podcast and the magazine is to try to educate people on some of the other stuff that goes on. Kevin did a fantastic story in the magazine a couple of years ago about bat research and white knows. What do you got, Lee? You wanted to talk about fly fishing for muskie. I do want to talk about it, but actually, and just kayaking in general. Because you know what? If we can't go fishing sometime soon because of all this rain, we can still go kayaking. Mm -hmm. It'd be a fun one. I mean, there's got to <laughs> be some good high water fishing opportunities. I don't know if we want to go catch carp or catfish in the flooded cornfields. That could be fun. Mm-hmm. Never have done that. <laughs> I did. I did have a. I wanted to set a goal for this year, fishing wise, and uh, I was thinking about the species I haven't caught yet, and that would be chain pickerel, bowfin, pike. But I don't really consider the pike to be one that's very reasonable. Yeah, Lower River Lake. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and, and, and brook trout, a natural natural brook trout here in Kentucky. And apparently, there's only a few streams you can catch those in. So, well, it's funny. I just wrote a piece about brook trout in. Um, is it the gourds, parched yes. corn? Parched corn? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there, we're also going to expand to Chimney Top. Um, going to move the browns down, take their numbers, stocking numbers down, put them more in the pool habitat that's more toward Red River, mm -hmm. and then put brook trout in the headwaters, 300. Because the ones at Bark Camp, uh, we saw some natural reproduction, which is great. So, yeah. hmm. That'll be good. And, you know, we had some ice storm issues and some other disturbances in that uh, watershed that that likely impacted the the brookies. They're I heard there. Sensitive. I heard so, there were some big brown trout in Chimney Top. There are. They're few and far between, but there are. They were under a 16 inch one fish daily protection, but now that's the statewide regulation. Yeah, <clears> I've heard something we need to do sometime now before March is go over the new regs. Yeah, that sounds good. Mm -hmm. I'm looking statewide now is one brown trout, 16 inch minimum. Yeah, here's the here soon the fishing should just start getting better all over the place if the rain ever quits. I mean that's yes. all of course if the rain quits. I think the river is supposed to crest tomorrow. The Ohio River is. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that the Kentucky River is probably cresting today? Mm -hmm. If the Ohio is going to crest tomorrow, I don't know. I'm working right on it right now, and it's on the just, Ohio. No, I'm on, on the Kentucky. Kentucky? Yeah, yeah and it just it is is not crested yet based yeah. on the the red what line there. Like? Just, oh, it's brown. Yeah, <laughs> it's very brown. Trees but, in the middle. Yeah, I mean, there's got a nice stream of debris going through, but it's debris that hasn't been loosened up in a while. Mm -hmm. um, this is as high as I've seen in it um, this whole season working on the river. I went down to Lock 4 yesterday, and uh, there was no lock. There was no dam. It looked like a, I mean, you could kind of see the disturbance in the water. You kind of see a riffle going across, but, I mean, you, they're, the big you know cylinders on the lock wall, mm -hmm. completely gone. The dam itself wasn't visible at all. It's pretty rough. It looked like you could have rowed a boat right over it. I wouldn't mm -hmm. suggest doing it. Yeah, big eddies there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> one, one thing we did last year, Bobby's trying to talk me into doing it again this year, and I'll do it, but it's wear your life jacket and uh, be prepared to swim type deal is sauger and walleye fishing below mm -hmm. the dam there. But we did it out of a canoe. You know, um, 
that's another thing. Lock and Dam three is really good. Not right, not right now. Nothing is, but, but as soon as the water on. goes down. Mm -hmm. And Lock and Dam two, their Lockport, you can pull down. You need a four wheel drive, but there's a ramp on the upper part, but right below the uh, Lock and Dam there, you can pull down on that gravel beach and launch a boat and then fish below. The, I've yeah. done that before for the art. I fished mm -hmm. on that ramp before with my mm -hmm. grandpa a couple of years ago. He likes to go down there and, and fish right below the, the lock on in the lockboard dam. That's number two, you said? Mm -hmm. Okay. And number three is at Monterey, and there's a public ramp there. Yeah. So you can launch it right there. I never have fished the Monterey one. Probably That's should. where I went during the Kentucky River Fish Kill in 2000. We mm. saw the biggest, most beautiful paddlefish that was struggling. We got him up in Cedar Creek, and we'd take off and then go on the side. So the fish kill of mm. 2000, you said? From the wild turkey fire, yeah. Oh, really? Killed out 66 miles of the Kentucky River. Killed out 66 miles. You know, and I was talking. When you were in the middle, you could see all the way to the bottom. It was covered in zebra mussels. You know. Because <laughs> the water was so clear. There are two mm. uh, two other species you just reminded me of I haven't caught, and that would be a sturgeon and a paddlefish. I haven't caught either one of those either. So those would be good ones. I'd like to catch a sturgeon. I, the way I understand it, you got to go to, I mean, I feel like they should be in the Ohio River. But, uh, they found some dead in the Kentucky after the kill. Well, I know hmm. that there were some in the Upper Cumberland, uh, also. That's a space. Lake Sturgeon. Yeah, Lake Sturgeon, the upper part of the Cumberland Lake, mm -hmm. is a place you can go We've catch us. We've been stalking those. them there, and uh, as a matter of fact, a good buddy of mine threw a cast net, and I've got a picture of it. Last year, they were throwing a cast net for striper fishing. It's like, wow, what's this big? <laughs> and it was a sturgeon, hmm. Lake Sturgeon, and the scoot. Cut the fire out of him. The scoots on the back toward the tail. Yeah. Cut the fire out of my buddy. Grabbed it and cut him to ribbons. Oh, I've that held. That was a big one. Hmm. I mean, they get seven feet long. I yeah. sent it to fisheries, and he was like, that's one of the biggest ones I've seen captured. So they're starting to get more and more numerous in the lake, which is cool. Hmm. That is cool. Go catch some of those and paddlefish or any of those big fish species would be fun. But carp Lake sturgeon have to be immediately released if you catch one. Yeah, I'm not, I don't think I'm actually going to go fish for Lake Sturgeon. Mm -hmm. I see people go to Texas or up north. A lot of people catch them in Canada and around the Great Lakes and Minnesota. Some of those are really big and long-lived. Yeah, mm -hmm. seven years. I think some of them get up there over 50 years old easily. I can't. I, I was watching that Uncut Angling show on YouTube, and they were catching sturgeon. The way they fish for them is pretty simple. I mean, it's just nightcrawlers on the bottom. Mm -hmm. That's all they do. Huh. It's like, I could do that. Oh, well. well. They have that little, they cruise around. I mean, it's they're wild. It's like a little vacuum under, you know. They suck up stuff off the bottom. I wish we had a video to go with this podcast so people could see that demonstration. Yeah, it was quite <laughs> remarkable. And some other fishing things that should be turned on soon that I would be more than happy to go try are, uh, well, not necessarily soon. I'm, I think we're looking two months out. But whenever the alewives start spawning on Cumberland, the striper, or all the bass species really be right up on the topwater bite. So that, that striper bite at night is pretty special. We tried that one once as well. Bobby was in his canoe. I was in my kayak. And we went out there and fished all over the opposite side of the boat ramp near the dam. We paddled across the dam, which was pretty cool doing that at night. Mm -hmm. And then fished all up and down those walls and a couple of cuts on the opposite side. And uh, we caught a largemouth, a smallmouth, a striper, and a channel catfish <laughs> over that day. And uh, I caught a channel cat and elk one on a jitterbug one time. I caught, <laughs> hey, pretty nice one. Me and Bobby actually remember last year when we did that uh, magazine article with the stink bait. Mm -hmm. We went back and we caught quite a few catfish in, in the, that spot. We went down, you know the the creek branches there, right at the hatchery, the catfish holes which you talk about, and that's where we were fishing right off the top of that log jam and mm -hmm. catching them in that undercut bank there. Any size? Well, we went down to the left fork, so the creek splits there, and mm -hmm. the right split goes along the hatchery mm -hmm. and the long way around and the other one kind of just shortcuts yeah. you to that riffle 
well, we were fishing on the left split, kind of where it gets backwaterish up mm-hmm. in there. And uh, we caught several catfish up in there, a couple of decent ones. Mm-hmm. A flathead that was, had the flattest head I've ever seen. Wow. Smallmouth. We catch a lot of smallmouth doing that, too. Yep. What were we using for bait? Were we using creek chubs? Yeah, we were cast netting. Yeah, we were cast netting to catch creek chubs and then just throwing like, it. Didn't, we didn't use stink bait, but we were just throwing creek chubs out there and letting a catfish. You got a nice smallmouth on micro that day. I did. I also got the worst case of poison ivy in the history of the world. <laughs> that was pretty funny. <laughs> I got it on my pants. I think I kept going down to dip the bait, and I had the oil all over my I'm pants. not sure how it happened, because me and Lee were literally in the exact same spot that day. I wore shorts, and we were sitting there on the same thing, and I came into work two or three days later after we did that. <laughs> Lee, Lee, Lee looked like he was oozing out of his arms. Oh, and God, all. it was horrible. It was the worst case of poison ivy I've ever seen. You had to go get a steroid shot for that one, I'd say. Well, I, I use that Technu stuff yep. that has a beads in it and breaks up. It worked. In three days, it was almost gone. That stuff works. Yeah. You're the lucky one then. Mm-hmm. Technu. <laughs> um, it's a poison ivy okay. rid. It's not like a calamine lotion or whatever. Well, that's, you know, all but worthless. As uh, far as I'm <laughs> oh, I, I agree. That's what I'm saying. That's why. I, I mean, we used to use that pink stuff all the time. We were little, with, you know, I just think it took its natural course and you just felt better <laughs> this think... stuff has like beads in it and breaks up the oils and it removes the oils there's two two-step process and it it is great hmm. but i think i had a lot of the oil on my waiting pants mm-hmm. and i kept using my forearms to stable myself as i did dip bait for everybody yeah. while we were doing this fellowship so <laughs> yeah that was fun though because it started off a little red, like, mm, I think I got a little poison ivy. And the next day, it was like, kaboom. We caught so many tiny catfish that day. <laughs> yeah. Tiny. I'm talking like that year's spawn mm-hmm. easily. And I'm not sure. Did some of our catfish get out of the hatchery and into Elkhorn? Oh, I'm sure. Um, and some of those could have been young of the year from natural. But during the 97 flood, a lot escaped. I heard a bunch of trout. No, not trout. What escaped? There was a, a catfish. A bunch of catfish. Okay, I mean, that's I all. Believe, if memory serves correctly, like 200,000. <laughs> escaped into the creek and that's that's really helped and there's still there's a ton of them in Elkhorn. Well, when was the when was the fish kill oh the for the kentucky river yeah that was in 2000 so and that was 97 when those escaped mm-hmm. so it would have been nice if it worked vice versa yeah. if we could have accidentally let 200,000 go three years after the fish kill that would have been great oh well the kentucky river seems to have bounced back up I, I mean i go jug fishing on it every now and then i'll put in right there a steel branch put in and uh drift or What's uh, put in above Steel Branch? What am I thinking? Oh, I'm thinking of Elkhorn Campground. Yep. I'm thinking Stillwater. Yeah, Stillwater Campground. You can put it in there, and it's exactly three miles to, yeah, downstream of to Steel Branch. Branch. So mm-hmm. if you got a shuttle going, you can uh, put a car at Steel Branch Boat Ramp and go put in at Elkhorn or Stillwater Campground. And I think that costs you four bucks mm-hmm. to park a vehicle there and to put in. But Yeah, but that's going upstream if you're paddling yeah. back to your truck. No, I'm talking about going... From oh you're right you're right Still okay branching. I did that backwards so park your takeout vehicle at Stillwater <laughs> Campground and then put your kayak in or your canoe or whatever you want to put in at uh, Still Branch mm-hmm. and go three miles downstream and uh, <clears throat> I never had a you know why I was confused is because I would actually put in I did that float before too but I would put in at Stillwater and I drift downstream and then I just have to paddle back up. Right now, it'd be impossible because I think yes. the, the river's flowing about eight or ten miles an hour mm-hmm. right now. So you're not doing anything. No. But in the heat of the summer, when it gets down and you know it's a normal pool, you can you can kayak back it's up the river. Water, yeah. yeah, I mean it's got. You can definitely tell there's a difference going downstream versus going upstream. But it's nothing crazy. Mm-hmm. Stop and take a break every couple minutes, and you'll be just fine. You don't lose as much ground as you gain. So um, that's always fun. I just 
I don't know, hunting season's over. I could still go coyote hunting or something like that, but I'm just dying for the water to die down so me I can too. go fishing. Lord, I'm about to die. It's <laughs> about, me. about to die. It might be a little exaggeration, but hey, I feel you. <laughs> no, not actually, no. But <laughs> <laughs> well, last year I felt like I was robbed. So. Yeah, oh, I was right there with you. I think I got out on the water, I mean, less than a half last year. I typically would, less, I mean, less than half as many times. You, James, and I try to get afloat, and we could, the few times that we could get all our schedules to mesh up it could be a three inch rain three days before and yeah creek would be blown out i'm sure canoe kentucky has all the stats on how last year looked in comparison to other years because mm -hmm. i mean that affects their schedule when they're able to put people 66 on the water 66 inches of rain in franco county all-time record what's it right now this year uh, i don't know how much rain i think we're already still, i still we're, we're about average again i believe aren't we oh we're definitely above average for rain so far mm -hmm. i mean it's been ridiculous. Now, there's ponds, places that there weren't ponds before right now. Mm -hmm. and the creek next to my house almost got up its banks yesterday. I can't find anywhere to fish. Even all the farm ponds are muddied up and useless. Hopefully here soon. You guys got anything you want to talk about, Lee? What do you got on your notes? Well, another good place. I'm going to make three no, little we're going, we're going we're back going to do stream musky fishing, some okay. of the better ones. Um, the uh, Green River below the dam, excellent musky population there. A lot of people don't realize that. Uh, Licking River in the Cave Run Tailwater. Really good, and you can you can put in at Clay WMA, which is well down from that, mm -hmm. and float down to uh, Blue Licks Battlefield State Park, and uh, that's that's really good musky habitat through there. A lot of woody cover, slow moving yeah. water, and of course Red River uh, below the Red River Gorge is better for musky, I think, than the parts that are in the gorge. But as you get that lower part of the gorge and on down, mm -hmm. you'll run into some musky lodge. Really, um, mm -hmm. South Fork Kentucky River is also excellent. Yeah, South Fork is definitely good. We fished there before, uh, Redbird River in that area also. I'm going to put that on the Blue Water Trails page. It was in the magazine last fall, and there's some suggestions on floats and stuff. So, um, Middle Fork near Buckhorn, you go upstream mm -hmm. of Buckhorn State Park is a is a good spot that I, I would feel confident there just because I've been there before and seen the muskie call. We caught three there one morning, which is pretty good. But Tigers for fly fishing, I think, might be the best because it's more intimate, mm -hmm. smaller, and it might be a little bit easier to handle with, with fly equipment. Yeah, at the same time, looking for spaces where where I'm not competing with fishermen mm -hmm. in the in you know in bass boats and or what how are they put a bass boat in there so yeah, that's the that's to my advantage you and know it's beautiful tiger creek's gorgeous just gorgeous I think it's my beautiful. I think my five weight would hold up no <laughs> <laughs> all right so well, it might, you know. I'll stick with the I've caught some giant fish on an ultralight before and I think I'll never get in so I'll stick with the Loomis I know my five weight won't hold up I yeah. feel like that but thing's gonna is that the one I packed to Florida that one that, that Loomis yes yeah, yeah I'll take that rod you can take the you take the fly rod Bob and we'll see that's not you know we've done that before where I've been like all right well I'm gonna outfish the heck out of you today you and your fly rod over there and I got my you know spin cast or whatever I mean some days you just catch more on the fly mm -hmm. and I'm talking about smallmouth Mm -hmm. It's all about the presentation, because I've, I've gotten whooped before taking that approach, and it's just if the fish want something in particular, that's what they're gonna that's what they're gonna eat. So, what's your favorite smallmouth fly? I just like fishing topwater, regardless. Yeah. So yeah. poppers are fun, mm -hmm. you know. And I'm not like schooled in fly fishing. I know I've got a horrible cast. I've been told, and that really, doesn't matter. Yeah, I have really no idea what I'm doing, but but I really enjoy the the interaction. Mm -hmm. On top of water with fly. Me too. Yeah. I'm absolutely positive I have the worst fly cast ever. I was actually fly fishing in the pond out here the other day, and I was praying that none of you guys were looking out the window. <laughs> I mean, I get the bait out there. I get it where I want it. You know, and it looks good. The line hitting the water, and you know, my bait falls right out in front. And, but I know that if, I mean, I watch the river runs through it. I know that I'm not doing the metrodome-type mm -hmm. casting mechanism. I'm swinging my whole arm and flailing it, whatever. 
Jeremy Daniel gave me a lesson last time we went on Lake Cumberland because he, he's caught several on the floating fly with a fly rod, some nice ones. And um, and he gave, it, I was doing a lot of things wrong. It, it helped me improve. Well, Keeping that arm anchored does help. It's probably harder on and the not, float. Not dropping your wrist in the back stroke. It's real easy to do, it's especially probably, if you thumb a lot of spinning gear. It's probably harder on the float and fly, too, though, because you got a longer leader. Mm -hmm. You can throw it out there. I mean, I was struggling. He can throw it. I mean, yeah, that's that's probably the hardest thing there is to throw with the flies. A big bobber, but a big strike indicator, rather, and a, and a heavy fly. That's that's tough. A heavy, heavy fly 12 feet from the strike mm -hmm. indicator. Mm -hmm. So yes. you got that much And he lead. can sling it. He's just got beautiful rhythm. Huh. <clears throat> it's not about power. It's about the rhythm and timing. You know, I would say that right now would be a good time to fish the floating fly, but all that Everything, rain, yeah. we got all that warm rain. Um, um, I wish I brought my cell phone. A buddy of mine showed me for the first time I've ever, he's he's got one of the few private slips on Lake Cumberland, who I fish with a lot. And I went before, and it was up a little bit, and it was coming up uh, right after Christmas, and we probably had 35 steps down. Now the steps are underwater. All the way. It's it's eight <laughs> feet over summer pool as of yesterday, I think. They will get rid of that water in June. That's what I was telling you. Last time we talked, I was worried about the, the spawn mm -hmm. in Dale or Cumberland. I, we're supposed to go fish, uh, what is 28th and the 1st? We're supposed to go fish uh, Dale. Hoping it'll be down by then, but it really just depends. And that's about when smallmouth spawn will... You know, they'll start thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Last thing I want is for them to get on the nest and lay those eggs. And, and have they it. drop the bottom out of it. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be horrible. That would be. Chad would cry. You know, speaking of topwaters, I used to go out with Farmer, and we filmed several Kentucky Field episodes. And all he threw was a, just those bets or bets, poppers, you know, Walmart, $1.69 a piece, and would wear me out sometimes. Oh, that's Catching a beautiful fish. Hmm. Story about that. I was going through storage over there and the old kayak stuff, and Farmer's old fishing vest was over there. And he, uh, in the pocket of his fishing vest, he had a, a box of just those poppers. So I grabbed those, and I've been fishing with them for a year now. <laughs> you hear that, Farmer? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's a, I, I asked, and, uh, and they said those were his personal ones, that I could probably just take them. So I, uh, there was like four of them. Caught, I caught some fish in the creek and some fish in the, the farm pond. I haven't lost one yet, so if you want some back, I mean, they're at my house. <laughs> but it's fun. Those little wiggly legs, and boom, they hmm. crush them. This is about the time we'll start fishing with the mouse on the elkhorn. With the fire rod, I think that's... That's my favorite. Been thinking for ten minutes since you asked. <laughs> You've been thinking about which one's your favorite. <laughs> yeah, definitely the mouse on the fly. The mouse. I never have tried that, but I've seen you try it before. I don't know if I've seen you have success on it, but it's maybe. a good brown trout bait too. Some out west. Yeah. The first I, I, in my phone somewhere, I have the a picture or video or something from our first trip last year when we both went in the canoe, and uh, that couldn't have been too far after where we're at now. The sauger fishing. No, I'm talking about when we went to Elkhorn first. With float. the canoe. Yeah. Did we flip the canoe? Oh, that day? You lost your knife. I lost my hat, my hoodie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Where at on the Elkhorn? Yeah, we were actually we put in at. We uh, at the claw. Is that where it happened? No, it was a very simple. The claw's been defanged now. Where, defanged the, where did we put in there? I think we put in at uh, the Church's Grove. No, we put in below that. We put in at Knights Bridge, didn't we? Well. I'm just thinking where we flipped over was between Church's Grove and Knight's Bridge. Okay, so we had to put in it. Mm -hmm. Church's Grove there. Yeah, I flipped a lot on the Elkhorn, but it's the only time in the canoe, I think. Yeah. I, fl I flipped everything I've been in but the Hobie. They used to sit by the claw and cheer you and say, go this way, go this way. And say, this is the best way. And then when you flip, they'd yay and laugh and stuff. When you talk about the claw, where's that? That is at the end of Jackson Hole. It's where Sulphur uh, Lick Creek comes in. 
and it's kind of brady and and what it was was there's an old tree there that had a root structure that water had blown out and it stuck out over the creek and the way that the, the flow worked then is it would take you straight into that unless you booked it and knew what you were doing. It could cut, up, oh, cut across. Oh, I know what you're talking about. And it would catch the front of the canoe. And if, if anybody's ever canoed or kayaked, that's the, you never want your bow to hit something hard at speed because you're going to go flippy flip. Because <laughs> And that's what happened. I mean, and what, you know, if, if you're going fast and your front suddenly stops and energy has to go somewhere and it goes in making your back end fl- go out and then you go over. Not yeah. the Hobie, though. The Hobie can handle it. Yeah. And, and, and I, I, I mean, I did it by accident that day. Yeah. I don't know how I flipped. I pushed off the first time I went through. But now a flood knocked over that root system has kind of went around it. It's still there, but that tree's kind of over. And now uh, it's just kind of blown all that out. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you can still hit that high bank on the right if you do that fast. It's no good. But just once you get there, get to your left, and you're, you're, yeah. it's pretty easy. It's a good yeah. place to go snorkeling for cell phones and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Well, you never find a cell phone that's worth anything when you go snorkeling. <laughs> I <laughs> have found a lot of rods, none of them more than reels and stuff in the creek. <laughs> They're all junk by the time I found it. No, we, I mean, I, I can't wait for that. I hope that we can do it this year because, honestly, snorkeling Elkhorn is as fun as anything to me, and especially if you can go out there on one of those days in the summer when, you know, the sun's full sun bluebird sky right above you might not be the best day for fishing you can go out there and if you got a kayak or a canoe you feel comfortable and you can stand up and you can yeah. almost survey the the bottom of the creek as you flow by i've seen a ton of stuff that way oh it's great and uh, if you're a bow fisher if you like bow fishing that's a great way to do it too when the water's kind of clear like that and if like in my kayak i can just stand up so i can literally stand up and it's almost like i'm on a conveyor belt just drifting down the creek it's really i mean it's fun in my opinion, it's more fun than fishing out of a boat on the river or something like that. But mm-hmm. that's just me. I like mm-hmm. I like enjoying the creek like that and just oh. looking at the bottom. It's a lot of fun. Me too. That's it's mm-hmm. great. You guys got anything else you want to add? Because I'm going to turn her off. If not, but you got something for me? Uh, fishing guides are should be out. Uh, they arrived here. They're going to be out anytime. Uh, there's also a free one on the website fw.ky.gov. So mm-hmm. we got quite a few new regulations that you and I need to cover sometime in the podcast in the next couple weeks we'll do it uh, also, they're free hunting hunting and fishing license expire the end of this month mm-hmm. so you need to get out of there like i just said we were planning a trip to del hollow on the 28th and the first so we're going to need our new license before we do that mm-hmm. otherwise we might be in trouble on the morning of the first and the new regs go in effect march 1 you know when i uh before i had this job i, I went hunting with the show and i took it to the show coyote hunting and we went hunting on uh, march 1st i met up with them in the morning and uh, we were driving in the car, and as we were getting out of the truck car, and this is before I worked for Fish and Wildlife or anything, so I was getting my coyote hunting gear ready, my buddy was too, and I realized, oh, crap, it's it's March 1st. I, I'm getting ready to go hunting with Fish and Wildlife, and I don't have my new hunting license. So while we were walking in, I was on my phone over here, going through everything, and pulled out I, my... I got to catch up on this real quick. Sorry about that. that <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I, I literally bought my... My life, it's my life. I literally bought my hunting license on the way in to that stand that morning because it hit me. So don't be don't be me. Um, buy it ahead of time and you don't have to I've worry. I've done that with it. my wife. She's like, "Well, I'm gonna fish." I'm like, mm, okay, well, yeah. thank you, yeah. Mister Phone. Yeah, yeah it's nice as long as you got the social security number, birthday, last name, and uh, something to pay with. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, that's all you need. And uh, if you guys want to get me a birthday present, you could get me my 2019, 2020 sportsman's license. Oh. Be appreciative. Maybe somebody's listening that will. <laughs> Good luck, man. I doubt it. Session big time, man. Oh, yeah. yeah. All right. You got anything you want to add, Bob? You got to have something. Give me something to think about. I don't know. Well, I would say 
if I can say any messages, did you know, support your local farmer's market. <laughs> your farmer's market spend some money in your community. Yeah, we do it all down. Yeah, support local. I agree with that. And I do have one more thing I want to add, Lee. You might get a kick out of this. I went to the Louisville Duke game last night. Did I tell you that? Yes, but th- that's all you said. All right, I went to the Louisville Duke game last night, and I left with eight minutes to go. Could be worse. I went to the UK game last night. Oh, well, no, it's not worse. No, I, I, the the UK game was bad. Obviously, the missed call, last second tip in, it was a bad no call. LSU won, beats UK at home. That's bad. Did you see what happened to the UK or the U of L Duke game last night? No, they, they blew a twenty three point lead <laughs> in the last couple of minutes. It was the it was the biggest comeback in the final ten minutes in NCAA history, and I walked out <laughs> right beforehand. I literally got out of my seat and I was like. Well, let's beat the traffic uh, pretty safe of 23. And as I was like on the escalator, I pulled it out and I looked at my phone. I was like, oh, I'm only up 16 now. I was like walking in my car in the in the causeway down to 10. <laughs> Got in my car, four-point game. I stopped at the first stoplight, looked at the score, and, and they had blown it. And I was just absolutely amazed that I'd gotten up and left. And LSU's got a good team this year. We shouldn't hang our hats. We'll learn from this. It'll no, happen. we shouldn't hang our not. We shouldn't hang our hats as hard as Louisville should because they blew a twenty-three point lead. But uh, yeah, don't K- learn from Kentucky. It. Shouldn't have lost that. I, I'm kind of wondering if they were looking ahead to Tennessee. Mm-hmm. I don't like to use that excuse, but I mean, you got number. Well, we played really poor defense on that last possession. You can't let the guy drive it right down the gut. You got to make him stop that ball. Who'd, pass who'd you go to the game with last night? Oh, Chad. Chad. Chad, yeah, he texted me, asked me if I wanted to go. Yeah, I know it was the last on his list, but I was the only one who made it through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would have uh, probably taken Bruce was Bruce had tickets he went to. Oh cool. And Bruce uh Bruce and Chad both asked me and typically it's like I'm looking, I'm dying for somebody to offer me a ticket to a UK game. The one day anybody ever offers me one this year, I already got myself signed up to go to the U of L game. Which is fine. I mean, I see Duke in person. was pretty cool. But uh, The reason I wanted to tell that story was to give you time to think of something else to add, Bob. I wanted to put you on the spot one more time. Okay, so we got buy local, support your farmer's market. What else? Oh, more things. Yeah, I want one more. Well, I think if you can, to um, nothing is better for a space than a tree. So if you can plant a tree, set yourself up for the long run, plant yourself a nut tree somewhere, or have you know plant a tree on a friend's farm. Or space if you can. Just go out and plant a tree somewhere? Yeah. Yeah, nobody's going to complain about that. No, it's going to be around, hopefully. <laughs> All right, well, that's good advice. We'll take it. <laughs> all right, Bob, I'm going to end on this thing. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. We'll go fishing soon. All, all of us go fishing soon. We all like the elk corn. We all live fairly close. <laughs>